So I was thinking about um, one of the things this week about how there are things in life that we have irrational fears of. I know none of you have irrational fears. Um, that's just something I've probably dealt with at different points in my life. But when I was a kid, I had an irrational fear. And I'm going to tell you this irrational fear because, I mean, not, I wasn't afraid of the dark. <laughs> Who's afraid of the dark? Um, but my irrational fear was my parents had this pool in our backyard, and um, we would swim at night in the summer because it's so fun, right? Um, and we would have to pull that sol- solar cover across the water at night, and then I would have this kind of fear there are sharks. This is a chlorinated pool in southern Indiana. There are no sharks in southern Indiana, unless they're in a zoo, right? Like, those are real. So I would, like, swim as fast as I could, because we'd have to pull the the cover across, and then you'd have to swim from the corner underneath the cover to the ladder to climb out. Might not have been safe either, but that's a whole other conversation. But, But I was just irrationally afraid of sharks in the water. Now, I love going to the ocean. I know, there are sharks there. Um, weird fears, right? We have weird fears at times. In fact, my wife has a fear, and she's at the kids this morning upstairs, so she doesn't, I mean, she can hear about it later, but um, when we had first gotten married, we'd been married, I don't know, six, seven months, we'd bought a house, and I was upstairs putting clothes away, and it was a two-story Cape Cod house, and so I was upstairs, and she was in the basement where the washing machine was, and so there were, you know, two flights of stairs to go from one to the other, and I'm putting away clothes in the closet, and I hear her scream. And it's not the kind of scream where you like think, oh, you know, it was like blood curdling, someone is attacking her, I sprint, I'm in socks and I had wood floors, bad combination, right? I'm flying down the steps, I'm bouncing off walls, I get to the back stairs, I run down the basement, I think I like hit every part of my body on some surface, and I get in and I go, what's wrong? There's a spider, will you kill it? <laughs> Honey, I don't know how to tell you this. But since you were about a year old, you could kill spiders. When you could move your limbs, you were capable. And so I didn't say that out loud. I just thought that in the moment, right? And I killed the spider, but I have never forgotten that story. Now, whenever she yells, and it's, I mean, I don't know why she's yelling. I assume it's a spider now, and I don't hurry at all. Um, But I still have to kill spiders occasionally, right? We have irrational fears, fears that are not based on reason. Sometimes, though... We have fears that are based on reason. They're rational when you begin to understand where they come from. Maybe you struggle with fears of abandonment because a parent left or a spouse. That's real. Maybe you struggle with fears of wondering what it's like when you have lost loved ones and so you're afraid to get close to people because you have lost people in your life and you're struggling to know how to do that. Maybe you have fears that you're never good enough. Maybe you struggle with anxiety. Maybe you find yourself afraid with whatever it might be, but fear can grip us in such a way that it holds on so tightly that we don't know what to do. It can paralyze us. Fear is daunting. But what if, um, what if we recognize fear is a powerful thing? But what if we also recognize that sometimes we can overcome our fears that we can persevere through them. In fact, what if sometimes the fears that have held us so hostage become things that we overcome? These obstacles become new opportunities in our life. What if we find a freedom from our fears that is even hard to explain? What if that's possible? What if God can take our fears that are obstacles 
and turn them into opportunities. Right? What if people who have suffered with debilitating fear, whatever it might be, become people who then turn that fear on its head and are able to talk to people and help them overcome that same fear? What if what we've experienced becomes something that's a part of our story but not the defining part of our story? What if we are so transformed that God takes our fears that have been obstacles in our life or in our development or in our faith and they become new opportunities for God to be at work in and through us? Fear's scary. But sometimes opportunities are scary as well. See, there's this church in Philadelphia, uh, not that Philadelphia, the one in Pennsylvania, not that Philadelphia, that, you know, the city of brother love in, in Pennsylvania, not that Philadelphia, another one in Asia. And the city of Philadelphia was known as a city of fear at some level, and here's why. There were tons of earthquakes in the city of Philadelphia. And so we've been looking at these seven letters to the seven churches in the book of Revelation and beginning chapters, and the city of Philadelphia is one that we'll look at today, but we've been looking at the way in which John writes to each church of the seven churches in Asia. And he writes in such a way that he says, hey, I'm writing to the spirit of a place, to the spirit, like kind of the the personality of a community. And we've talked about how our church has its own unique personality, both good and bad. And the more we come to know who Jesus is, the more we are loving towards one another, we care for our community, the more the spirit of the place is good. And we've talked about how of the seven letters he writes, only two are to churches kind of celebrating the work that they're doing. This is one of those two. In fact, it's the longest letter to the smallest church and probably the least important city of the seven cities. And he writes this church to the people and says, hey, um, I've got some thoughts for you about how you continue to stay faithful. But just like the churches then, the churches today, right, we're asking the question, how would we just stay faithful to God and his kingdom in the midst of the world in which we live? And so what we've been looking at all throughout this, these seven letters, we'll continue throughout this book of Revelation, is this idea that God wants us to know that God is present with us in the midst of whatever it is we are going through, our fears or whatever. That in the end, God is going to redeem and restore all that is broken, including us, and that God promises he will be faithful in the midst of whatever it is we are experiencing. But like the early churches, the spirit or the angel of the church is impacted by the community in which the church is located. It's no different for us. Right? If we had backed up 100 years in Muskegon history, we'd be impacted by the lumber barons and all that kind of stuff, and that would impact the culture of our church. We're kind of past that as impacting, but we would be naive to not say that we are impacted by industrial work. We're impacted by factories and people and community college, and all kinds of stuff shapes the culture of a community, but it also shapes then the culture of churches. And so Philadelphia was a city that was founded by Adolf II in 140 B.C., but it was also a kind of a strategic city because it was at the corner of three different, or the intersection of three different countries. It was known as the gateway to the east. And you're like, what in the world does that mean? Well, like the Romans and the Greeks, their goal was to Hellenize all of Asia. And so what we mean by that is to make them Greek. So kind of like evangelism for the Greek culture. And so this was kind of the gateway for that to take place in Asia. And so what would happen over time is that they would just come in and they would begin to teach and preach in a way that you might go, hey, you know what? Whatever we used to believe, we're out on that. We want to be Greek. We like the idea of this Roman influence. We're going to buy into this. But it was also a place that because of its location near volcanoes, 
it had incredible agricultural value. And so agriculture and industry were the primary forms of life. They had great vineyards, but what also would bring like economic boom, right, that would make the vineyards so fertile in the soil, was the same thing that would bring destruction. And so earthquakes were pretty common. Earthquakes were so common that in 17 CE, the city was destroyed. And so when the city was rebuilt, it was the emperor of Rome who rebuilt the city. And so the city changed its name from Philadelphia to Neo-Caesarea, or the new town of Caesar. So this city owed a debt to Caesar, because Caesar is the one who rebuilt it. And so the city was known because of the earthquakes. They would leave, and they would come back, and they would leave, and they would come back. If you were poor, you got stuck, but if you were rich, you would go out in the country, and you had your house out there, and you would keep leaving over and over again. So this was a city where people left and came back on a regular basis, because when the earthquake would come, you're not going to sit inside your home. You would leave. So what's it look like for us, then, for this city, this city to be so radically defined by that? A culture of coming and going, a culture of what's messed up. And so what we find is Philadelphia, even to this day, this faithful city in the middle of Asia, is a city that even to this day is a Christian city. In fact, still has a, a bishop that's a part of the church there. And so here's what we find. These people were resilient, even if they might have been fearful of what was happening around them. So here's what John writes to the church there. To the angel of the church in Philadelphia, right? These are the words of him who is holy and true. Who holds the key of David? What he opens, no one can shut, and what he shuts, no one can open. I know your deeds. See, I have placed before you an open door that no one can shut. I know that you have a little strength, yet you have kept my word and have not denied my name. I will make those who are of the synagogue of Satan, who claim to be Jews, though they are not, but are liars. I will make them come and fall down at your feet and acknowledge that I have loved you. Since you have kept my command to endure patiently, I will also keep you from the hour of trial that is going to come on the whole world to test the inhabitants of the earth. I am coming soon. Hold on to what you have so that no one will take your crown. The one who is victorious, I will make a pillar in the temple of my God. Never again will they leave it I will write on them the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which is coming down out of heaven from my God. And I will also write on them my new name. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. So what we find not only to this letter to the church in Philadelphia is all the seven letters, is the author paints pictures with words, but he does it in a very particular way. He does it in a way that he takes what they would understood to be a part of their particular city, and he paints it in a way that would be helpful for them, right? So he begins talking about the character of Jesus, which is holy and true, and then he talks about this open door. Remember, just a few moments ago, we mentioned the idea that Philadelphia was the city that was the open door to the east. It was the gateway to the east. So this open door to Hellenization, this open door to Greek culture, this open door is no longer open in that way, but it's open in this way. It's open to what God is at work doing. Saying there's an open door to evangelism, this idea that you can tell people about who I am, where you are in the midst of all that's going on. And it's an open door for you and I to go from seeing obstacles to opportunities. What's it look like for us to no longer see obstacles, but opportunities? 
Right? In that community, the Christians had been shut out of the synagogue because they were not Jewish in the way that Jews understood what it meant to be Jewish. And so you were not welcome because of your following of Jesus. And so they were cut off from the place that they had known as the place of worship. But it didn't keep them from acts of worship. Right? They recognized it wasn't defined by place. In fact, one of the things I think is important for us to catch in this is that no one can shut what he opens. You're like, what does that mean for us today, right? We can gather in churches, and that's not a big deal. But maybe if I took it to a different context, that might be somewhat helpful. Sometimes I'll have people say, well, I can't, um, you know, I can't witness to people at my work. Well, what you mean is you can't tell people about Jesus. Okay, maybe you can't, but that doesn't mean you can't pray there. People go, well, you know, there's no prayer in school today. I'm like, well, I don't know what schools you've been in because I've seen lots of prayer. In fact, I'll, I'll tell you this, I, I coach a, a basketball team for one of the middle schools, and we prayed before and after every game last year, and the year before, and the year before that, and the year before that. Right? Like the idea, no, it's probably, honestly, this is going to sound horrible, right? It's arrogance on our part to think that God's been pushed out of these places. There's no place that you and I go that the presence of God is not already there. There is no place that you and I go the presence of God is not already there. That is one of the most important things for us to remember. Because the church in Philadelphia was likely poor and pushed to the margins. And they recognized that their ability to worship God was not defined by their circumstances. But the obstacles in front of them, they still saw opportunity that the smallest, least important church of the seven churches in the book of Revelation, the least important is still the one that is most fruitful and faithful to this day. Obstacles for many of us became opportunities for them to be faithful to God. But did you notice in the letter it says, I know you are of little strength. All right, let's be honest. Um, no one likes to acknowledge when you feel like you're not enough. No one likes to acknowledge when you feel like you're weak. No one likes to feel like when you feel like your life is falling apart. No one wants other people to know those kind of things. But here's the reality. What would happen? What would happen if the people of God didn't fake it? They're honest when they feel like their life is a mess. They're honest when they feel like that they don't know what's going on. It's not wrong to long to be strong. But it's also not wrong to acknowledge when you're weak at something. Right? Even the most the strongest among us have moments of weakness when they feel exhausted or worn out. Jesus himself did. He did. If he's the one which we're following and we're seeking to model our lives after, to acknowledge that is not wrong, it's the reality of what it means for us to be human. And in those moments, for us to recognize our need and our desperate desire for God to be who shapes our hearts and our minds and renews us in ways that matter. But here's the problem for us when it comes to fear. Fear causes us to think that our weakness is failure. When failure is to not recognize our fears. To act like they're not real. Act like they don't exist. Because when we acknowledge them, then we can begin to overcome them. But if we don't acknowledge the reality of them, we try to bury them away and push them to the corner, right? Like, here's what that looks like for us. For some of us in here, maybe if you're a dad like me, you're going, I, I fear I'm not good enough as a father. I'm not doing a good enough job. 
I want to be better at this. I, I don't, you know, maybe you had a bad model as your own father or an absent father. You're going, I don't know how to do this well, and I want to be better at it. But until you acknowledge the need to help grow in that, you're never going to be able to. It's true for me. If you're a mom today and you wrestle with the same thing, you feel like you're not sufficient as a mother or a wife or a grandmother or a coworker or whatever it is, if we don't acknowledge the reality of what we feel like we're coming up insufficient, that we don't acknowledge our weakness, then we can never learn to rely on God's strength to help us overcome and the strength that comes by being a part of his unique people. And then there's this line. Verse 12 talks about this idea that uh, you become a pillar in the, in the temple of God. See, in the city of Philadelphia, when you had been like a great politician or a great person in the city, um, they would write your name on a pillar, and, and they would post that pillar, and so the pillar would be posted for them. And so what he's saying is not, we're going to put this pillar in the city for you, but you're going to be a place in which the very presence of God dwells. You. The pillar is you and I. If we choose to be faithful to God, God will make us a pillar of where God's presence is seen and felt and known. And then he paints this picture where heaven breaks into the here and now, the new Jerusalem coming down. This idea that God is going to redeem and restore and make all things new. So what's the good in this text that we see? What's the thing that jumps out like, oh, okay, cool. Um, this church has been faithful to Jesus and his word in the midst of all that they have experienced. In the midst of difficulty, they have stayed faithful. They have patiently endured. The bad, uh, the synagogue doors were shut for those who follow Jesus. It's a pretty tough place to follow Jesus. In fact, the church was likely small and poor. And if we're going to say like negative thing about the church, right, there's nothing negative about the spirit of this church, but it'd be like that they were fearful, but, but that's because of earthquakes. <laughs> it's a good reason to, to leave, right? Like what's it look like to live in that way? So let's think about what this looks like for us today. Just don't let anyone take your crown, right? I, I, we might better say it this way. Don't offer up like this idea that this victory, this crown of life that you're going to have, don't give it away. And so uh, maybe a better analogy is helpful, right? Sometimes we talk about, um, talk about marriage, right? When you get married, you're no more married in that day than you are 50 years later, but you're so much more married 50 years later. Make sense? We did a wedding yesterday for Nathan and Alyssa, War and, and they are as married today as they're ever going to be. But 20 years from now, they're going to be more married than they were today, right? That's how that works. If you're married, you're like, yeah, I get it. If you're not, you're going, I think I understand. I'm not sure if I want to. Also valid. But here's the reality, right? We, we experience things. When we come to know Jesus, we enter into this relationship with him, and we're like, hey, I, I want to live for you. I want to serve you. I want to follow you. I believe you love me more than I could ever express in words. But the longer you come to know him, the more you know him, but you're no more holy than when you first came to know him. But you grow, and you learn, and you begin to be transformed and to be changed. And so, right, here, here's how this works. Um, if my wife and I have a fight this afternoon, I don't think we're planning on it, but if we did, if we fought this afternoon, um, we would still be married after that fight. Right? Like, I know she's not going anywhere. On, like, day one of our marriage, if we had a big fight, I might have been concerned. Like, is she going to stay? I probably was concerned, let's be honest. Um, but here's the reality. It's, it's like this in our relationship with God. When we're wrestling and we're uncertain and we're not sure where we stand, like, God wants us to know he's still faithful. He's still present. 
one frustration, one concern, one whatever it is, he's not running from you. Or I'd say it even this way, right? Um, I, I don't have any keys in my pocket, but if I did and I were to lose them somewhere in this building, by the way, someone left their keys here a few weeks ago. We still have them. I don't know how you're driving. Um, but good for you. But that person lost their keys and needs to come back and find them. But if I lost my keys, this is not how we lose like our relationship with God. Oh, can't find them. Must be over. We believe in God who continues to pursue us, who loves us. Now, I can willfully decide to walk out of my marriage. Not planning on doing that, right? I can willfully walk away from my keys and never go back for them. But our relationship with God is not like a set of keys that can be lost and maybe never found again. It is a relationship which we enter in and God desires to know us in such a way that we are transformed by him, that when we wrestle and we're concerned, he is still near to us. And people who've lived in that kind of way become pillars of the faith. And so the question for you and I is, what's it look for us to be a pillar of Christ? Are we living in such a way that other people can come to us? Are we living in such a way that others might come to know him more through us? Right? I, I love a quote, someone kind of twisted the words, but it's, ask, what you, ask not what your church can do for you, but ask what you can do for your church, right? We could, you know where that came from, JFK. Anyway, um, but what if you did? What if you asked the question, what not can the church give me, but what can I do to further the work of the church in the world? What would it look like for me to engage in that way? What's it look like for us? Do we cling to Jesus when our life is in the midst of earthquakes? Or do we run scared? Do we live as the very temple of God, the place where his glory dwells? Or do we go, well, you know, ah, I want to kind of live apart from him. Do we see obstacles or opportunities in the world around us? And so I was thinking, like, what kind of jumps out from this text? One, this idea of enduring patiently. I am not a patient person, and some of you are not either. And so I always come back to this, you know, this little verse, these few words in Psalm 46.10, right? Be still and know that I'm God. Like, it's just a simple little phrase. But, but this idea that what would happen if I would just sit and rest and stay in the presence of God? What might happen if I just lived in that space and allowed God to speak into my life? What if I just tried to listen patiently? Instead of trying telling God what to do and what he needs to do in my life, what he needs to do in someone else's life. What if I just listened and I was still? And I knew that he was God, and I'm not. And so I was thinking, what are the things that look like for us because we don't endure patiently? Why do we sometimes not endure patiently? Because we're afraid of what the outcome might be. We're just kind of afraid, if we're honest. I mean, fear does weird stuff in us. Right? Those of you who like, wrestle with certain kinds of fears, you're like, I know. I was talking about irrationally swimming from sharks in a pool, a four-foot-deep pool, it's not even going to be a big shark, right? I mean, like, seriously, like, what, what are we afraid of? But we miss opportunities by seeing obstacles. And so we've been having this conversation among our staff and, and here in the church and going, and, I, and I've been saying, like, what? Are, I think sometimes we don't even dream because we're afraid. The dreams might not become the reality. So I was thinking, what are the things I dream about? So I thought I'd just tell you some of my dreams. That for, for our church, one, I've dreamed for years, and I've talked to a couple people, and if they feel a little convicted in this moment, I'm okay with that, because I've longed for us to have a celebrate recovery as a part of our church. 
I've dreamed about that for nine years that I've been here, but I know I can't lead it. It takes someone to lead it who's passionate about it because I think it matters. Because I think in our communities, there are lots of people who have hurts or pains or addictions or hangups or habits that lead to brokenness. And what if there was a space that was designed to have those conversations? In fact, I started dreaming about what ifs. Like I, in fact, I, I sent a text to a few people last night and even again this morning. Uh, there's a building that just went for sale in downtown Muskegon that I'd love to buy and turn the first floor into like a used bookstore slash coffee shop slash I'm not sure what. And then the second floor would hire interns that would come and they would create a space and environment in which the whole premise of the building and the whole people would be this. What would happen if we created a space because we recognize in our world today Mental health issues are off the charts. Anxiety, and part of it is stemmed from this idea of feeling alone and lonely, not sure who we are and what we believe and why we exist. And what if we brought in people whose sole job was to create conversation in which you would feel welcome and want to be, a pl- be there? Now, long term, I'd love to have people in the church, but I recognize lots of people aren't going to start there, but they might start there. What would it look like for us to have that kind of space or place where people can feel welcomed and known, right? Kind of like, I know it's an old television show. I probably shouldn't even watch it, but like the old show Cheers. If you're over like 35, you might know what I'm talking about. If you're under 35, I'm sorry for you this morning. You can probably watch it on YouTube. Um, but, but a place where everyone knows your name. What if we created spaces? And like, so that's kind of one of my dreams for this place downtown. I don't know that I'll be able to raise the capital to buy it, but that's my dream. But see, here's the problem with Fear. Fear can keep us from dreaming. It keeps us from thinking about what could be or what is or what's possible. Fear keeps us from seeing opportunities, right? So here's, here's where this is like, well, that's great for you, but, but I mean, it would be cool for our church to do, but, but what about me? Um, what about you and your faith? Right? Sometimes fear keeps us from seeing opportunities to invite someone just to come to church. Fear keeps us from even wanting to come to church. Fear keeps us from telling people our story about how we came to know Jesus. Fear keeps us from wanting to be discipled or even disciple someone else. We overcome obstacles and fears through knowing and trusting Jesus. We overcome obstacles to fears by knowing and trusting Jesus. It matters if we would overcome our fears, especially in terms of our faith. Why? Because our church literally exists to connect people to people in relationship and to connect people to Jesus. And we think it matters. Right? I was thinking, what, how, would I, how would I try to describe that in a way that matters? Right? We desperately believe that every person on the face of this earth was created in the image of God. That every person on the face of this earth is desperately loved by a divine creator who cares about them, who knows them intimately, and even knowing them still loves them with a reckless abandon. Because the character and the nature of God is love. We desperately long for people to know that you're not an accident, that you matter, that you have worth and value, that you are intrinsically a part of the kingdom of God, that in his family there's always room for one more, there's always a seat at the table, that you're always invited to be a part. We desperately long for people to know that God so loved you that he sent his son, that he would even die for you so you can know the depth of his love, not to, not to condemn you or the world, but to redeem and to restore and make all things new, including you. 
And we long for people to know this, that God so loves you that there is literally nothing you can do. Nothing. That God will still not love you and long to know you in a way that he knows you. He longs for you to know him in that way. But what might happen? What might happen if we lived in such a way that we weren't afraid of just letting people know that they're deeply loved with the kind of love that we'll go through everything for, right? I, I talked about, I did a wedding yesterday, and so officiating uh, the wedding, um, by the way, I will tell this story because it's over now, but um, so I, you know, sometimes, by the way, if you ever ask me to do your wedding, send me the invitation. If you don't send me the invitation, sometimes I can not know what time stuff starts. Um, so they just told me, I wrote down 2.30, told sound guys 2.30, 2.30, we all had 2.30 written down. I got here at one o'clock, it's plenty of time before 2.30, at like 1.58, I'm just moseying along, walking along, all of a sudden I happen to notice, we've already signed lots of documents, all that kind of stuff, I happen to notice that everybody is seated, that's weird, 30 minutes early, that's really weird. Then I notice all the bridal party is standing in line. Also very weird. Because the wedding doesn't start at 2.30, it starts at 2. I would have been a half hour late, but I was here, so it was fine. So we just like, hey, let's do this. So afterward, we kind of laughed about it. I was like, my fault, I wrote 2.30 months ago. Um, but I talked about in the wedding yesterday, we, we talked about what love looks like, right? We use this, this passage from Ephesians chapter 5, and I talked about how it talks about we're supposed to love as Christ loves the church, What's that look like? It's never failing, unceasing, selfless, and sacrificial. I said to them, like, oh, you should love one another like that. And here's what I would say to you all. I desperately believe in a God who loves you and I in that way. And he wants you not only to know that he loves you in that way, but he wants you to come to know him, to find your whole identity and self and being wrapped up in who he is because it reorients who we are in a way in which we know who we are and why we exist and what on earth we're here for. So what might happen if our church and the church began to say, you know what, we're not going to see obstacles and all these kinds of things, but we're going to see opportunities to help people come to know who they are in relationship to who God is and how it could change everything. So what might happen if you and I decided no longer are we going to be afraid, that whatever has held us captive or fearful, we're going to let go of and we're going to decide that no longer will obstacles be things that keep us from opportunities which God may have for us. So today, for you, what is an obstacle in your life that God might be saying to you, will you stop seeing it as an obstacle and see it as an opportunity to further the work of my kingdom in this world? And maybe today you're going, I don't know about obstacles or opportunities. I don't even know if I bought Jesus, but here's what I would say to you. We all long for you to know. I long for you to know that God's love for you is greater than we could ever comprehend or imagine. Just this week I was walking Isaac. I walk him to the, to the bus stop almost every morning. And it's about a quarter mile one way. And so we have a couple minutes every morning to talk together. And so I was walking with him this week and I said, buddy, I love you. And he goes, I know. I said, no, I mean, I really love you, buddy. He goes, I know, Dad, and I know you love me, and I love you. And I said, oh, good, you know. Um, and I said, but as much as I love you, it pales in comparison to how much God loves you. I don't even have words to describe to you, son, how much God loves you. Don't have the words. And today, if you're wrestling with where you fit in the world, I don't have the words to describe to you how much God loves you. But I know this. If you live your life seeking after Jesus, you will never regret it.
pray with me? Father, we thank you for this opportunity to gather together today. For the way you desire for us to not only know that we are known by you, but to know you. So this morning, if we're wrestling with where we stand in the midst of all that's going on in the world, may we find that we can stand with you. That when life is shaking all around us, when we feel uncomfortable or concerned or scared, we begin to recognize that you are a God who comes after us and loves us and desires for us to not only know you, but to be known by you in such a way that changes everything. So, Father, today, whatever it is that grips us, whatever the spirit of this church is, may it be the spirit of a place and a people who have been and will be radically transformed by your love and your goodness. And so we ask today that you might help us, whatever fears we're wrestling with, whatever things in our lives we see as obstacles, so you might help us to overcome them. In the midst of that, we might find ways that we can use them for opportunities to love and care for other people. And may we as a community of faith be known as a people who desperately love and care for others. And so, Father, we ask this morning that maybe if I'm wrestling with what it means to follow you, that I might make a commitment even here in this moment to commit my life to you. We pray all of this in your son Jesus' name.